Whole church, y'all good? I'm a little loud, so don't take it personal. That's just, that's just me. I tend to uh, be a bit expressive when it comes to stepping into spaces to proclaim the goodness of our God. So Pastor Steve, he asked me, he was like, hey, he, he's, I guess he's introduced me around these parts as the rapping preacher. And, um, you know, I'm okay with that. I, I've been called worse, so I, I'm good with that. But in the way of um, introducing myself, I think it would be fitting if I started with this. I have a great love for this church because I know about its inception. I know about the foundation that was laid when the Lord uh, burdened Peter Swan with this vision. And so uh, as a dear friend, it is cool for me to actually be in this place now, uh, knowing what has preceded me. And so know that I don't take this lightly and uh, know that I also consider it a privilege to be with you all. My, my family couldn't be here uh, with me tonight because of some previous commitments, uh, but you know, the good news of, of Jesus is that he's not separated by distance or miles. So I can be here, they can be there, and God is still in the midst. And so uh, on behalf of my family, thank you all for inviting me. And uh, I know that we've prayed, but um, I, I also want to be one who's led by the Spirit of God. And uh, in this moment, I do believe it would be fitting if we all prayed together. And so I'm going to ask you to actually pray with me. Uh, I want to lead you in a prayer. So if you would bow your heads and repeat after me, I uh, pray that the Lord would use this to align our hearts as we get ready to step into his word. If you would repeat after me, Lord God, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name and in his power that I humbly ask you to free me from anything that would prevent me from hearing you clearly. My hands, my feet, my mind, my mouth, my heart is yours. Speak to me, Lord, that I might walk in greater obedience. It's in that unparalleled name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And all of God's people who agree said amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so he asked me uh, to do a little rap. So um, usually I like to rap with, with music behind me, but what I've learned with hip hop is sometimes, first off, a lot of it don't honor the Lord Jesus, if we can just be honest. Um, but Sometimes I've found, particularly with God-honoring hip-hop, people tend to get so caught up in the beat that they don't even pay attention to the word. So, like, I like to lace my stuff with Scripture. Here's the beautiful thing about rapping for Jesus. I'm never at a loss for word. Like, I never got a mental block. I got a bunch of stuff to choose from. But I don't want the beat to be so, like, ooh, I want to, where, 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 no, 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 I, I, I prefer that you hear uh, what, I, what, 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 my, what I'm trying to communicate. So, in the way of just giving you just a little sample, a little something-something, uh, I'll start with this. I could rhyme about cars or the money I spend, but I'd rather rhyme about the God who can pardon your sin. 
And if you're looking for the place in which my trust hangs, it's called the cross of Christ. Let me explain. See, if you're not playing on God's team, you're the opposition. So while I've got your attention, please stop and listen. This life ain't a game in which you want to be God's opponent. The only way to rectify it is through a son's atonement. I know it ain't cool to be. Known as him, Jesus freaks. Yeah, yeah, Jesus walks. But what about when Jesus speaks? Who in here is game to rep the Lord and stand up? God is looking for some real ones to stand up. Everybody got a reason why they deny the very same God they're going to have to face when they die. And I ain't trying to be some sort of superhero. Without Christ, I ain't nothing. That's why I love double zero. When I start talking this way, yeah, this is what some say. I'll get around to doing that church thing Sunday. I ain't talking about going to church. I'm talking about living a life, honoring Christ, so you don't have to search for the temporary pleasure from the lust of the flesh. We don't see it as we foolishly rush toward our death. We see sin as extravagant, harmless, exciting, alluring, enticing, terrific, inviting, but he don't see it that way. He sees it as a trap where rebellion and destruction are like markers on the map of your life. If you ain't really trying to see the Lord, Sin got you mixed up like the letters on a keyboard, but he poured out his love and we soared like a dove and the umbilical cord to sin has been removed like a glove. When facing the master, want to be seen as that redheaded stepchild? Then get yourself a lifestyle and get rid of that death style. That's it. Just a little something, something. Just a little something, something. Well, friends, tonight I want to talk about motivation, specifically motivation for holiness. And I'm going to be in Isaiah 53, but I want to start with a couple of verses out of 1 Peter because they're going to actually allow us to step into where we're going. And so let me just read this word, and I'm going to ask you to allow it to speak to your heart and your mind. If you'll read, just, just follow along with me. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read 13 through, through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. The Greek there is, gird up the loins of your mind. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I started there because 1 Peter is a letter that focuses on the importance of Christ's followers standing firm in the midst of unjust suffering. Though we are not living in the time in which this was written, the parallels of what's going on now versus what's going on then are almost identical. If you bear the name of Christ here in the earth, you are probably in some respects under some sort of severe persecution. Now, to be fair, persecution in our day and time often gets confused with inconvenience. Like, I hear people say all the time, the internet went down. That's not persecution. That just means you got a bad signal. Or maybe you need to pay your bill. Persecution is when you stand up for what you believe in Jesus, there is a very likely threat that something harmful could come upon you. 
And what's interesting is, outside of the bubble of Americana, this idea of persecution is actually normal. It's making its way to where we live. We still live in a part of the country that is very much in a space where church, or I'll even say Christianity, is socially acceptable. When I go, I just was in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, and I got family on the East Coast. We can go to the Northwest. Pick most of the other parts of the country, and oftentimes the idea of being a Christ follower gets confused with stuff that has nothing to do with the Bible. Case in point, I'm in San Diego, and I'm wearing a shirt that's basically a, a slogan that I, our church uses in the way of you know, promoting the kingdom. And this lady at the airport says to me, that's a great shirt. Where can I get one of those? And I'm like, well, I know a man. I know a man. She didn't quite get what I was, what I was saying. So I said, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. She was like, oh, that's that restaurant down there on such and such street. And she was like, for real, like pointing me to this restaurant. I'm like, she has no idea. Well, in this part of the country, if you say you're a Christ follower, there's a sense of understanding. Like, like if somebody at church says something real deep, you know what people who've been around church and Jesus tend to do? They do what I call that holy sigh. They'd be like, mmm, mmm. Or if you're fluent in Christianese, you know what to say, when to say it. The problem with that is persecution is a picture of God's favor on his people. Like when you look at the text, where you see huge pockets of persecution, you often see the gospel spreading. And so while none of us want to be gluttons for pain, the truth of the matter is, if we have succumbed to the idol of comfort, persecution is going to feel like God did us a, a wrong deal. I'm talking about persecution because if you'll follow me here, I think you might get something out of this. Motivation for holiness is my subject tonight. And I want to give you the best reason I can for you to understand that persecution, holiness, whatever words you want to, want to lump into this conversation tonight, there is a motivation that none of us should be able to shake. None of us. I like to, I tend to explain things in stories. And so if, if, if you can follow along with me, I'd like to take you on a, on a quick visual. It is November. You have been enjoying Thanksgiving with your family and friends. So you've been eating too much. And if you're like me, you eat, go to sleep, eat, go to sleep, wake up, eat, go to sleep, do it again tomorrow. Same thing in December. Christmas holidays, pies, cookies, cakes, all these things. But around November, December, if you watch TV, I don't watch a lot of TV, but if you watch TV, you'll notice there tend to be a, a wide swath of people offering all these different programs for you to lose weight so when you step into that new year, you can be a new you. My background is in marketing. Here's what I know. The average person only does that for about 30 days. And a master marketer knows that as well. So they will tell you all this, and just, I'm going I'm to I'm probably make some people who work in, in the uh, fitness industry mad, but just pray for me, and, and I'll repent later if, if this is bowling down your alley. 
If indeed you're in that place and you're trying to lose weight, 80% of weight loss is diet. It's not working out. So if you want to lose weight, it's good to work out. It's really about what you put in your body. Sidebar. <laughs> By February, the marketers know most people have kind of, oh, well, they're not doing that no more. Well, it's because marketers understand everybody's motivation tank has limits. Everybody's motivation tank has limits. I'm talking about it through the lens of weight loss. But what about through the lens of holiness? If you are an individual who is walking with the Lord Jesus and your desire is to maintain a level of connection and depth that goes beyond the superficials, you've got to know it's got to be rooted in something more significant than motivation because motivation has a shelf life. And there are going to be days you're not going to be motivated to get up and spend time with God. There are going to be days you're going to not be motivated to, to repent. There are going to be days you're motivated to not want to do the right thing. So what's the motivation for holiness? I read those verses out of 1 Peter because Peter's actually quoting Scripture out of Leviticus, and he's saying, because your God is holy, you need to be holy too. Now, granted, none of us are God, but we can be like him in the way that we live out the commands that have been put before us in Scripture. Holiness is defined as being distinct, being set apart, being other, uncommon. Why do you think God would call us to be holy? Well, very simply, the scriptures say because he's holy and he wants us to follow his lead. If motivation wanes and God is calling us to be holy, the question I want to answer tonight, and this is a question that if you're a Christ follower, you should wrestle with. The question I want to answer tonight is, what is the real motivation for holiness? Those verses out of Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 10, that were read earlier, I, I want to submit to you, those are the best, the best verses that point to why you and I should never lose our motivation for being holy. Let's take a trip. Let's get in the airplane. Let's go about 30,000 feet in the air. And then let's look down. What those verses show us is the crucifixion of our king. Isaiah 53, 3 through 10 are a very clear description of the crucifixion of Christ. I want to walk through that crucifixion for you if I can for just a few moments. The first thing I would draw your attention to is what I'll call phase one of the death of Christ. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a Hebrew word which means oil press. It's where we get our word anointing from. If you, think about, uh, if you think about olives being crushed, there is a measure of grace that comes from being crushed by God. And those verses in Isaiah actually said it was our Lord's pleasure to crush him. Gethsemane. Jesus tells his disciples, I just really need you to do one thing. Well, actually, two things. Pray and don't go to sleep. And what these boys do? They don't pray and they go to sleep. Well, from a 30,000-foot view, what we can see is that 
Because God is all-knowing and Jesus is God incarnate, he knew what he was about to endure. And because he knew what he was about to endure, there was mental anguish associated with knowing he was about to change history forever. The mental anguish of telling his disciples, don't fall asleep, I need you to pray, and yet seeing them fall asleep. The mental anguish of knowing what was on the other side of this entire ordeal. The weight of it was so heavy that according to Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Jesus undergoes a medical process called hematidrosis, which basically means bloody sweat. The capillaries in his head expanded under the mental anguish of what was going on to the point that it looked like he was literally sweating blood. That's phase one. Phase two is when he gets unfairly tried by the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas for a host of reasons. I can give you several. For a host of reasons, this trial was illegal. The Sanhedrin, which was the high Jewish council, they were not to levy charges, and yet they did. The high Jewish council, they were supposed to investigate charges. They formulated them. More so, they pronounced a death sentence, which was against the law, because again, they weren't supposed to formulate charges. You were not also supposed to condemn someone to guilt on the Sabbath. This whole process began on a Friday in a garden, which in Jewish times was the Sabbath. Yet you were supposed to wait till at least the next day. Think about that for just a moment. They did this to our king on a Friday, and we call it Good Friday. It wasn't good for Jesus, but it was certainly good for us those of us who have stepped into this place of understanding because he's holy, he's calling us to be holy as well. A couple other aspects of Jesus' trial being illegal. One witness was not enough to condemn someone in a trial. Arrest couldn't happen at night. My whole point in saying this stage of Jesus's death was he was unfairly tried and yet did not say a mumbling word. Y'all, we're talking about the king of the universe. We're talking about the one who created the men who were actually inflicting this upon him. He didn't say a mumbling word. He could have he called a legion of angels to be like, yo, y'all come get me. But he didn't. The third phase of Jesus' death is mockery and physical anguish. And if you knew that you were coming to die for a people that could care less about you, wouldn't that put a little weight on your shoulders? According to Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some of us weren't thinking about him, yet he was thinking about us. The mental anguish now turns physical. They start to kick our king. They start to beat our king. They start to pull his facial hair. They start to kick him. They start to spit in his face.
Since he said he was the king of the Jews, they thought they'd have a little bit of fun with him, so they actually put a crown of thorns around his head, and they didn't just set it there. They actually pressed it two inches deep into his skull. You the king, huh? Okay. They also thought it would be fun to mock him in the way of him being a king. So because he said he was the Christ, they actually put a purple sash around his back with purple representing royalty, and they put a stick in his hand, which was supposed to represent a scepter, and they made him parade through the halls. And then when they got tired of mocking him in that way, they took the stick and hit him in the head with it, not only busting his head open, but pushing that crown of thorns two inches, that was already two inches deep, pushing it deeper into this vascular tissue around his cranium. These men, y'all, the same people who were yelling Hosanna a few days earlier were now yelling crucify him. The same people with palm branches as he's riding into the city. Hosanna to, 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 to the king in the highest. Now they're saying crucify him. And because this mob of angry onlookers got so loud and demonstrative, the powers that be felt like they had to do something. And so these Roman soldiers, they, they took him outside. Matter of fact, the order was given by Caesar. They tied his hands together and put them slightly above his head. And they used this instrument of torture called a flagellum or a cat of nine tails. And a cat of nine tails was a leather whip that had straps in it. And in the ends of the straps, they had anything sharp they could find, glass, rock, bone, with his hands above his head and his back exposed. They hit him with this cat of nine tails, and every time that thing hit his back, his skin starts to come off like ribbon. Because that glass and that rock and that bone, those jagged edges are literally ripping his skin off his back. And under Jewish law, if you got hit or scourged, as they called it, if you got scourged 40 times, you would legally be considered dead. They never wanted to kill him in that moment. They wanted to torture him, and that's why they stopped at 39. They continue to kick him. They continue to beat him. They continue to rip the skin off his body. So now you got tissue damage. You got veins and capillaries exposed. There's blood loss, profuse bleeding. Isaiah 52, just the, the chapter before Isaiah 53, actually prophesies that he was going to be beaten to the point that he wasn't even recognized. They did this to our king. The next phase of Jesus' death, I'll call this Golgotha, which is Aramaic for the place of the skull, which is also, we probably know it better as Calvary. It's Latin for Calvary. They made our Savior carry a cross that weighed somewhere between 80 and 110 pounds. 
They made him carry it the length of six and a half football fields. All the while still beating him, still kicking him, still disrespecting him. And then they laid the cross on the ground. They put his shoulders on the crossbar. They laid his arms out like this here, attached his arms to this cross, and they took not little bitty Home Depot nails, they took nine-inch railroad spikes, and they drove them through these tendons in your wrist, which actually connect to your back. Everybody do me a solid. Wait, raise your right hand. I want you to reach right under the base of your palm. You should feel a little indention in there. In Jesus' day, your wrist was actually considered part of your hand. So when they put him on that cross, they drove those nine-inch spikes between his wrists. Right, left. Then they put his left foot on top of his right foot and drove another nine-inch spike through the arches of his feet. They, 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 they bring the cross upright, so now at this point, the only thing suspending him to this cross are those nails. And because those nails went through his skin, shock starts to set in. The nerve endings that were severed when those spikes went through are some of the most sensitive nerve endings in the body. And you know how pain is in your body. Pain doesn't just stay where the pain is. You get a splinter in your pinky toe, and you're going to feel it all the way in your left ear. It's going to radiate through your body. Well, because he's got spikes through his fist or through his feet and in his wrist, there's, no, there's pain shooting up and down, up and down. These clowns had the audacity to gamble for his clothes. The scriptures say casting lots. These men were professional torturers. So by severing that tendon in, in both of his wrists, they knew that there was a that basically they were going to have they were going to present, prevent him from being able to breathe properly because there is a tendon that connects with muscles in your back. And if you know anything about the way the body works, legitimate breathing actually originates in your diaphragm. Well, if you can't use your back to support you, you're going to put more pressure on your lungs, on your heart, on your internal organs right here. And couple this with the fact that now because he's suspended to this cross, gravity is starting to push him down. So every time... He attempts to shift his weight. He has to put pressure on that spike on, on, his, on his feet. So when he attempts to shift his weight to get back up, now he's getting splinters in his back because remember, his back was an open mess. And this goes on for three hours, y'all. Three hours. How many of you have ever used the word excruciating, like you got an excruciating headache. None of y'all? We can get some SAT prep classes if you need them. <laughs> our word, our English word excruciating comes from the Latin word crucifix. Because this was the most heinous form of death known to man. It was barbaric. Matter of fact, if a woman, which was rare, but if a woman got crucified, 
They would never let the woman's face be out toward the crowd. They would always make a woman face the cross. Because they said the sight of watching a woman die in that fashion was unbearable. The next phase of Jesus' death, he's on the cross. I told you this went on for three hours. Eventually, fatigue sets in. The, the, the diaphragm, the inner organs, the pressure on the lungs and the heart, all of that stuff starts to come together to the point that his body starts to shut down. And so now, in an attempt to breathe, his lungs start to fill with carbon dioxide and fluid. The medical term for this is asphyxiation. It's, it's a fancy word for suffocation or choking. He can't breathe. His diaphragm gives out. His muscle, his muscle core is, is gone. He's shifting his weight up and down, up and down to get some sort of relief. And eventually, he's like, I, I'm, I'm gone. Eventually, he shuts it down. The most common way of ending a crucifixion was to break the individual's legs. Now, I love how Scripture is true. The Psalms were written 800 years before the crucifixion. In Psalm 22, there is a prophecy that says he would not have any broken bones. He had some severed tendons, some torn muscle, a lot of blood loss. Bodies start to go in into shock, but he had no broken bones. They didn't break his legs because they thought he was already dead. So what they did do is they took a lance, went through his rib cage, hit the sack around his heart called the pericardium, so out his side comes blood and water. This is what they did to our Savior. So when you and I experience Christ's death as power for our daily lives, friends, I can't think of a better motivation to live holy. Because here's the bottom line. I told y'all, let's go up in the airplane and do a 30,000 foot view. Let's bring it down to planet Earth. The truth of the matter is, you and I should have been paying for our own sins. Take Jesus' face off that picture I attempted to create and paint for you. Take his face off. Put your face there. You should have been the one having nine-inch spikes driven through your wrists. You should have been the one having nine-inch spikes through the arches of your feet. I should have been the one being spat upon and kicked, having to carry this cross. But because God so loved us, we didn't have to. And if I can be just completely transparent, I am, I am absolutely convinced some of us are too familiar with Jesus died to save you. Y'all, that picture was gory. There was nothing beautiful or pleasant about it. Beautiful for us, horrendous for our king. The best motivation I can give you is every crack of that whip was what God thought about our sin. Every time they spat in his face, every time they pulled his facial hair, every time they punched him, that's what God thought of our disobedience. 
Every time he, he, he tried to breathe, he struggled to breathe, he was actually paying for, for debt that he didn't owe. And yet, <laughs> through what appeared to be his defeat is our victory. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you and I have no excuses when it comes to being motivated to walk in holiness. It may be a situation where revisiting the goriness of the crucifixion is just what you need so that you remember. I'm not worthy, man. I'm not worthy. He most certainly is. He most certainly is. When Jesus allowed his precious body to be broken and poured out like an ocean, it was so that thirsty sinners like you and I can come and drink. Our motivation for holiness is very simply, Christ is enough. I pray that the story of the crucifixion is told over and over and over to the point that we get tired of hearing it. Because here's what I know. If this is going to be our reality, which it is, it can't be something that we just visit once a year like Easter. This needs to be something that is a very vibrant part of what it means to be fully his. I never like to assume that when I'm speaking to an audience, everyone in the room has trusted Christ because I've learned, particularly in this part of the country, Christian spaces are a great place to hide out if your heart's not fully his. So if you're here tonight and you've never come to that point of acknowledging I am guilty, if you've never come to that point of acknowledging I need to bow my wicked knee before a righteous king, if you've never said Lord, I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. If that's never been a part of your vernacular, I would love to go home with a very clear understanding that tonight you gave death the deuce, and you stepped into life. I know we're going to close, and we're going to have another song of worship when we get done. But I feel like I would be less than faithful to my call as a minister of the gospel if I didn't tell you, yes, Jesus loves you, but he loves you too much for you to stay the same. If the picture of the crucifixion isn't enough to move you to a place of I am motivated to walk holy because he's holy, if that ain't going to do it, I don't know what else to tell you. Christ's death is our victory. That is our power. And if everybody who bore the name of Jesus in the earth would press into that, I think some of the revival we've been asking for and praying about would actually start to happen. But until then, well, you and I can be encouraged by knowing that God don't need a whole lot of people. He just need a few faithful ones. Yes, he had the disciples. He had, you know, the Bible talks about there were more than 12, but talks a lot about the 12. But even within the 12, he had three who were close. 
God ain't looking for big numbers. He's looking for just big faith. I want to close with a visual to illustrate what I attempted to share with you in the way of words. And the premise of this is, if, for, if, if, if nothing else I say lands with you, I pray this does, you have absolutely every reason in the world to be amazed at your God. If you all would, turn your attention to the screens. <clears throat> 